Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists. Ruby's live remote receptionists and proprietary technology are your solution to delivering excellent customer service experiences by answering live calls in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, or making outbound calls for you. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more, visit callruby.com or better yet, call us at 855 255 Ruby. My guest today is Dan Canary. Dan serves as chairman and CEO of Massachusetts Bay Brewing Company, also known as the Harpoon Brewery. The company was founded on the Boston waterfront in 1986 and has been recognized as an Inc. 500 company and an overall great place to work. Dan's favorite festival is the Harpoon Oktoberfest. His favorite post-run beer is Harpoon IPA, And his favorite place to drink beers is on the patio of his house in Vermont. That sounds wonderful. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Paul. Great to be with you today. Well, I I can't wait to just jump into your story. And uh, um, I can just, uh, I'm getting thirsty just thinking about uh, your wonderful craft beers. And and, uh, But the company started back in 1986. I know that you uh, had gone to college, you'd gone to graduate school or working in the banking industry. and, and, And somehow just for a lack of good beer to drink, you found uh, with a couple partners a way to do it uh, on your own. Tell us how that got started. Yeah, you know, over late night beers, I'm, I'm sure it was uh, been fortunate enough to travel in Europe right after college, backpacking around like a lot of lucky kids get to do and stumbled uh, on all these great beers and styles and breweries. And, and it was so different than what we had back in the U.S. at the time where it really was a sea of light yellow lagers coast to coast. You know, you could change the tap handles, but the beer was basically the same no matter where you went. Versus in Europe, it was just an explosion of styles and histories and that kind of thing. So after bemoaning that for a few years, uh, talking to a, a, a college friend who was in business school at the time, he was doing his a research report on the microbrewing movement, which had just been getting going in northern California and the Pacific Northwest. And we just started kind of talking to each other about, could we ever do this in Boston? And I, as you said, I was in banking and I, I wanted to make a move. I was single, 25 at the time, and figured, you know what, why not? If I'm ever going to try to start a business, this seems like a good time. So I left my job. He graduated from school with a, and with a third classmate of his. We went and raised $430,000 and did just that. We opened a brewery here in Boston to try to change people's perceptions of what beer could be here in the United States. Well, it couldn't have been all that easy. Uh, you know, hey, we, I, we just got together with two couple of buddies. I was single. We raised $435,000. Uh, how did you make that break from banking and, and, uh, and really have the courage and to, to uh, make this leap? Well, you know, I, I, I knew I was one of the many that really didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. So I went into a bank training program. I got my MBA at night. But I still was not convinced it was the right path for me. So... And three, three or so years into that, 
And I decided I need to start exploring some alternatives. So I looked into very seriously becoming an American history professor. That was my minor in college. I took the GREs, applied to schools. I applied for money management jobs in Boston. And the third option was the brewery. So I knew I wanted to leave banking. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to explore these other alternatives very seriously. So I try to find out more about what I want to do. And by the end of that, I was so excited about particularly the brewing option. It was an easy jump to make. It's like, you know what? I've got, to, I've got to go for this. I really believe in this. It's going to be fun. I'm working with people I like and respect. And again, really, at the end of the day, how much do you have to lose? I didn't have a, a family yet. I didn't have a mortgage. I could afford to take the risk. It was a, you know, a different time. It was, it was the, you know, quitting and starting your um, a business was not as common as it is now. So I definitely had some interesting conversations with my parents. After all that education I had, they said, you're going to go and do what? My parents were teetotalers. They never drank. So that was another hurdle I had to overcome <laughs> on the whole time. But then they became one of the lead investors in our company. So it all worked out. Wow. So uh, talk about the, the, the company today. What's you know, your size and scope? I know you have a couple breweries, maybe uh, t- total number of employees, revenues. Where's the company today? We're just shy of $60 million in revenue. We have about 200 full-time employees and another 100, 125 part-time employees, mostly in our two retail businesses, one in Boston at our brewery here in the waterfront and the other one at our brewery up in Vermont where we have a, a Riverbend Taps and Beer Garden, kind of a restaurant. Here in Boston, we have a big beer hall. Um, we sell in about 30 states from Maine out to Minnesota and down to Texas. Um and it is a, it's a great business. You know, the beer business is one of the world's oldest professions, if you will, bringing people together in social settings for a very, very long time. And certainly I've been, you know, incredibly pleased and excited to have been part of this kind of craft beer revolution that's turned the U.S. from being one of the worst places in the world to be a beer drinker back you know, in the 70s and early 80s to being absolutely the best place in the world to be a beer consumer today. Is that is that right? I mean, is that you can unbiasedly say that that's yeah. uh, the transition that's been made? Yeah, you know, we've been, we take our employees every spring on them. We call the employee beer culture trip to Europe. So once you hit your when you hit your fifth anniversary of employment, eighth, twelfth, and then every five years thereafter, you're eligible for a trip. So since 1999, we've been doing these trips. I've been going to Europe a bunch before that too. And you know, back then it was all a one way. It's a one-way uh, street with ideas and, and, and education coming from Europe to the U.S. And it started to switch about 15 years ago. And about 10 years ago, it became a one-way street the other way. So we go to Europe now, and people are all trying to find out from us, what are we doing that's creating such excitement and beer? We've had German you know, uh, brewers we've gotten friendly with that have had their children come and work with us for summers. To try to learn about, you know, how can we get some of the excitement that's going on in the U.S. and bring it back to Europe, and that's that's incredibly gratifying to see. Wow, that's a, that is, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys were a part of that too, and something that you're really proud of. Uh, let me let me take you back, Dan. To you know, you talked a little bit about your parents, but um, you know, to be able to go out and start a business like this, grow it the way you guys have to the size you are today, is really uh, pretty incredible. But that was uh your your upbringing your personality what allowed this to happen what what kind of influences did you have from your folks early on great question you know i i really am everything that i am because of my parents and other people i've been 
you know, blessed to come into contact with in my life, my wife, et cetera. And I, you know, I know we're going to talk about the decision to become an employee-owned company that we took four to five years ago, but um, the values that underpin and have always underpinned our business. I think one of the reasons that I was probably too immature to realize it at the time that I really have loved starting my own company and running my own company is that you're able to do it in a way that's consistent with your values. You can, you know, you don't have to work with jerks. You can have the, your approach to business mirror your approach to life. You know, the golden rule, treat others as you like to be treated. I mean, it's it's simple stuff, but for us, it's very, very powerful. I think the beer business is one. There are a lot of really good people in this business who are attracted to the idea of selling a product that when used in moderation, which we always push, can really be a wonderful social lubricant and, and a part of some tremendous experience in people's lives. And so, you know, we have built up relationships over the years with other companies, with vendors, with wholesalers, with retailers, and with other companies that have stood us in incredible uh, good stead for, for a very long time. So um, those values that underpin it, you know, my parents, you know, came from, worked their way up and uh, always treated people incredibly well, became pillars in their community. It was always about community. It was always about taking care of people and being there for people and being generous with your time and with your resources. And so being able to do that here at Mass Bay has been incredibly gratifying for me. And since we've become employee-owned, kind of adding that almost missionary element of what we're doing to see, you know, can we can can we prove that engaged employee ownership, you know, can work in, you know, the crazily competitive craft beer world. And it's the, the jury's still out on that. We're seeing, but we're having a heck of a lot of fun doing it, trying it. And uh, I think we're well on our way to success. But it's, yeah, mis- mission and values have always been really important to me and be able to live my professional life in a way that's very consistent with how I like to live my personal life is important. What about uh, early jobs? Uh, anything along the way that uh, helped get you started and, and also taught you some lessons? Well, I'll tell you, you know, one thing I've always found pretty consistent across the board in talking to other entrepreneurs is we all all had lots of jobs. Alan Newman, my friend who started, you know, Magic Hat and Seventh Generation, and he and I were both paper boys. I was a paper boy from age eight until the day I left for college at age 18, six mornings a week. And uh, I cared for three or four neighbors' lawns and shoveling snow in the winter. Started my first um, official job at like age, I don't know, 13 or 14, working as a dishwasher at uh, the Kudamesset Inn down on Cape Cod, mm-hmm. where I smelled so bad when I biked home at 1230 at night that thank goodness it was an outdoor shower because I had to <laughs> in the house without cleaning up. Um, I think I just learned, you know, the, the variety of life and the, and the developing the ability to work with all different kinds of people from a very early age. I've carried that forward to my own children. I think that summer jobs are a kind of underappreciated educational tool that parents have with children, especially in this day and age when I think kids lead more cosseted lives and are exposed to um, a lot less than we were. I, I had jobs. I worked with this wonderful old Armenian man taking care of our church growing up. He also had a half-acre fruit fruit farm that we took care of. I worked at night at a hospital washing floors, you know, 4.30 to midnight on that shift. That was two summers of work doing that. So I just had had, growing up, a wide variety. It was just always given that I was you're, you're going to be working. If you were off from school, you're going to be working. And I tried to carry that forward to my own kids and give them some experiences in the summer. But they just would never get going. You know, there's colleges and other schools that they've gone to. So... Lessons on perseverance, ability to work with 
people from all different kinds of backgrounds and actually really enjoying that. I've always, I've always got charged up meeting people from different backgrounds. I, I, I learn things. Um, I have fun. I think humor is another important weapon we're not using as much. I think our country could actually use some more of a sense of humor. We're all taking ourselves a little bit too seriously these days, and sometimes differences can be broken down through humor. Um, so, sorry, long rambling answer, but yeah, I, uh, I I loved a lot of what I did. It was hard, but it was fun, and it was very rewarding when I was a young, young guy. Yeah, those are all great experiences, and I uh, I can just resonate with so much of what you're saying. I think we're probably around the same age. I started my business in the same year. Uh, at, uh, I was uh, oh. 27, so uh, but again, you know, not married, no no mortgage, and um, you feel like you can, you know conquer the world. Uh, but it's not, you know, not always that easy. And certainly the, the education that you, you got gave you great background and, and a desire to try a number of different things. Um, along the way, can you think of maybe an unexpected learning that you got from an unexpected source? Gosh, you know, I've had, I've had so many of those, you know, where you just kind of come up short. I, I had a time early in my career when I was in biotech and I was, CFO of this, I was director of finance, and the guy, and there was a guy running the company that was just a, you know, he was one of the founders, and he was a really difficult person, and it was a difficult stretch, you know, and um, I remember engaging with a couple of the board, members of the board, and in a way that was probably not necessarily appropriate because of who I was at the company, but I just felt that this person had gone over the line. And it was interesting, very interesting to me, you know, to see the reaction of board members and to, and to get a real window into the private equity mentality. This is back in the, you know, this is many years ago. Um, I was really just a model. It was just kind of a, hey, we're just, we're not, not churn and burn, but it was pretty darn similar to that. It's like, hey, we're going to pump these companies up. We're going to dump them on the market. And there was only one, there was one director. She was the only woman, interestingly enough, who kind of got it. You know, and it was like, this guy's bad news. And um, these other investors, they simply wanted to make the money and run. And that lesson really stood with me when I thought, you know, in the future about how to start Harpoon and fund it. And, you know, as it turns out, that, that individual who I raised an alarm about, I was not alone in that. There were two of the other managers of the company said that ultimately ended up going to prison for committing a terrible crime. Mm. Um, but that, I think, and I, I sometimes in your biggest challenges at work, you can grow the most and learn the most. It can become really important to stick by your principles uh, in situations like that. But uh, you really do learn, you know, that you've got to stand up and you got to say, but you know, there are people out there that are just looking for the quick buck that are in it, you know, the, the churn and burn and don't care about values. And I didn't want any part of that world. And that was a great lesson I learned relatively early on in my career. Yeah, a really important lesson uh, to learn as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about back to when you you started with your two partners. Uh, I started my business, but it was with my two brothers and oh, law. Well, uh, yeah. well <laughs> yeah, yeah, potentially. And it wasn't, you know, a generational business. And I'll always say they were the best partners I could have had, but it wasn't easy. Um, and I sometimes wonder, God, what would it be like to start or run a business with people that were just colleagues or friends or whomever? So what were those early years like for you and your uh, partners uh, before you became an employee-owned company? 
Yeah, you know, great, great question. It's so clear you have, you just had a lot of such relevant experience and similar experiences. You know, it was terrific. I, it was three of us, and one of the partners and I went to college together. We knew each other well, and then the third partner had gone to business school with my other my other partner. And so I was getting to know him, and he was a fascinating guy with a very different background. Had been 15 when his parents, he was raised in Hungary, and 15 when his parents were going on vacation to Yugoslavia, and they ended up, you know, jumping off a train and sneaking across the border into Italy to escape communism. And it was resettled in Calgary, Alberta, and went on to Princeton. I mean, a really fascinating guy, five years older than me, but one who I'm still terrific friends with to this day. He left the business in 1990. Um, we really forged a great relationship. It was, you know, again, I was 25. You're young. It's amazing how little you know, especially when you look back on it. I think that can be some of the secret to our success as entrepreneurs in our twenties is we just, you don't know when you're not doing, you're not being successful. So you just keep at it and you just kind of try to figure something doesn't work. You just try something else and you have almost li limitless energy and ambition and creativity. But it was tricky at times with the different partners because there were three of us and we had three different personalities um, and different interests. And it, there were definitely some rocky times, you know, and I think then you introduce spouses into the equation and effectively they become partners of the business too, whether you want to recognize it or not. And I think <laughs> in the situation, it's even trickier when it's a sister or brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, so, but we had, then. The, so I said that like George left in 1990 and Rich and I continued until, you know, we did the ESOP in 2014 and really, for most of those years with Rich, we had a very good partnership. There were some strains at certain times, and certainly the last couple of years were a little bit challenging. But all in all, you know, my dad used to say this, too, because he had two partners in his business, that if you have a great partnership, there's nothing better. It really can work and work beautifully. Um, and ours largely did. And I, you know, I think, again, having someone to share the burdens with and also realize, hey, I can go on vacation because this other guys or gals got, got things covered. That's a great feeling as opposed to being the only the only person in charge. But when it, they have to be nurtured and they are very they have to be very carefully handled and um, if they go bad, it can destroy a business. And our unfortunately never went bad, but the, the transition for us to employee ownership at times did get kind of rocky where it had to be handled pretty carefully. So I would say when I talk about partnerships, I, I, I think go in with your eyes very, very wide open. Understand they're like a marriage. They're the second most important relationship in your life. And they have to be treated as such and handled very, very carefully. And if they work, they're outstanding. But when they don't work, you better have a game plan to unwind things. because Otherwise, it can take down your company. Oh, uh, for sure. I, Dan, it seems like we have so much in common. We should go out and have a beer. Uh, I, I have a place too. Do you have a place we can have a beer? Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny. I um, after all these years, I jumped into the restaurant business, and uh, it's a wine bar with, and we serve beer too. But it's out in the West Coast, so we got to get you guys to expand out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about this transition to an ESOP, um, an employee owned company, which you did back in 2014. That's also something we have in common in, in the sense that I researched that as an option for my uh, business at some point. And honestly, I found it to be so complicated uh, and, and that I said, yeah, I just got scared away. 
and yet I believe that the sort of the philosophy behind it and um, and what it stands for is really uh, something. And, and you're still fairly new, you know, a few years into it. Yep. But talk about first why you did it and and uh, what that transition was like. Well, it's kind of an interesting story. It's, um, you know, Rich and I each owned about 45% of the company. And we had six other investors who owned the other 10 to 11%. At one point, we had 82 investors, but we bought people out like over an eight-year eight period. And so we ended up with the structure we had. And those six individuals, two of them were our outside directors, and the four others were senior managers in the company. So in sometime in 2012 and 13, you know, Rich and I started talking about the future of the business. You know, we turned 50 in 2010, and um, Rich really brought it up saying, you know what, I really think it's time I'd like some kind of a, a transaction and I was like, okay, you know, all right, we'll start talking about it. So we started the way partners do, which is to avoid it, you know, maybe for a while because it's uncomfortable. And uh, and then we finally got around to talking about it. And he came down saying, you know, I want a liquidity event. I, I've done this for a very long time, and I, I feel like I've earned it. And I'm ready to kind of move on in my life and do something else. Or I'd like to, you know, just what I want to do is I want to either sell the company outright or maybe sell it to private equity. And I kind of, that was a bit of a gut check time for me, you know, and I was like, you know, gee, I loved what I was doing, loved the business. There's no way I wanted to go to work for private equity, period. Love that story from earlier with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly, and I, and I didn't want to sell the company. So I had to think about, okay, what do I want to do? And, you know, as I said, we each owned about 45%, but the agreements were written in a way that we really couldn't force each other's hand, but we could make things a bit challenging if one of us wanted out. So, I looked, started to look into options, you know, to get my partner liquidity while maintaining kind of independence for the company and came upon the idea of doing an employee stock ownership plan and hired an outfit from Chicago to come and take a look at the business. My partner, you know, had gotten a couple of bankers in to say, take a look at the business to sell it. I said, come, come and take a look at the business to, you know, are we suitable for an employee stock ownership plan? So we were kind of proceeding on these parallel tracks and, um, a little bit at a log jam. And I, so I said to my partner, Rich, I said, how about it's a little bit unorthodox. I said, what I would recommend that we do is why don't we convene the other six investors and treat them like a jury and let them decide what we should do with the company. So it's a little bit odd. You have the 90% owners basically turning the 11, 10, 11% owners and saying, you guys decide, you know, which option here. But my thinking was, I didn't want to do the employee ownership route if I didn't have the full support of at least the four senior managers in the business. Listen, I could sell the company and take my check and run. And these guys all were owners. And if they wanted to take the check and run, well, then that they should have that opportunity to do that if that's what they wanted to do. So in March of um, 2014, on a Friday morning, March 7th it was, we convened the group up in our IPA conference room, as it's rightly called. And... Um, presented both of our options and they had kind of known we've been kind of talking about it with them for the preceding month but this was kind of the meeting to get together to make a decision so we we went in at the beginning and then rich and i both left and a couple of hours later they called us back into the room and said the vote was six to zero to go towards an esop uh which was a pretty powerful endorsement and a uh and a very meaningful emotional day here. I said to Rich, I said, Rich, I'm not happy that I won this at your expense. That was a negative part of this. 
but I'm actually very, very happy with the outcome. So we can scrambled over the next three and a half months and put together a, a leveraged ESOP, bringing five banks into the deal and borrowing money from them to buy out my partner, Rich, and give 48% of our company to our employees. So all of those other individuals, all six of those, those, those people turned down money, uh, you know, fat money pretty immediately and at a very good valuation. They turned that down to kind of re-lever the business, you know, to kind of bring in 200 new partners, the employees of our company, to kind of go down a new road. So uh, very, very powerful stuff, and it's been a great ride since then. It's had plenty of challenges, but we're having we're having fun doing it, and it's a, uh, been very rewarding so far. But you're actually right in that it is. It is very, they are very complicated. So uh, incredible how that happened. Um, I'm, I'm just sort of picturing the month before the vote and, you know, was it just, you know, kind of all on the up and up or were you, you and Rich politicking behind the scenes and, you know, how, how bureaucratic did yeah. this get uh, as you led up to that day? There was, a, there was politicking. It absolutely was. I mean, I was talking to people about my vision and about what, how I thought an ESOP could work. Um, and Rich was too. And Rich actually went to the point of offering a couple of, two of the, two of the senior managers worked for him and two of them worked for me to even add to the injury. <laughs> and one of the directors was his oldest and closest friend in the world. He'd gone to uh, high school and college together. So it was an interesting day on a personal and professional level. And, um, yeah, he actually offered a couple of people money out of it, hit the, the proceeds of the sale to him to add to their add to their proceeds. And um, despite that, as I said, the vote went six to zero to go the other way, which is it was a very powerful statement about people who share values and about what we wanted to do with our with this business and with our professional lives. It was uh, it was really something. I was very very proud to be working with those people. Yeah, I, I bet. I mean, that is a, a very strong message, uh, how they chose. Um, so now, um, you know, as I think about ESOPs and the, the couple hundred people that you have, um, you know, it's one thing to say you're all owners. Um, what is that like in practice in terms of how that's or if that's affected the behavior of your employees in their day to day work? Like anything else, it takes training and it takes time and it takes takes repeating. You know, if, if you've got, we have 200 employees, so the math I can do pretty easily. You know, 20% of the people, 40 people got it right away, you know, or shortly thereafter, like, oh, well, holy shit, wow, this is, this is something, you know, and another, you know, 20% got it in the first year. And you keep trying to expand that circle. You have a lot of people that just don't know what it really means. What you know? What what does it mean to be an owner? You know, what is a CISA? How do you explain this? What is it? Is this just another gimmick from management? You know, that's like I don't know, profit sharing that never happens, or you know. Um, and it's up to us as senior managers to provide the level of training and education so that people do learn what it means to be an owner, do learn how an ESOP works, do know enough about other. ESOP companies and see what the impact it's had on those employee owners. Uh, as I said at the time, an ESOP is only an opportunity for people. 
It is that another key point people think was like 401k. So people are buying stock all the time. It's like, no, no, no. Employees are not buying. They're given stock. So, but for that stock to have value, you know, the employees have to create that value. So it's, it truly aligns everybody's interest in growing, you know, maintaining and growing the business. And so we have a very robust ideas program. We, we celebrate every month with what we call the Finance IPA, which stands for Increased Profits Awards, hmm. where we give out some, you know, to every month someone has either saved the company a lot of money or made the company money in an unusual way. We celebrate that and we talk about what that means for, you know, with multiples and how that might hit their stock price. So, for example, if you've got somebody in the bottling line who comes up with something that saves us, you know, a penny a case and we do a million cases a year and you know, so that's a hundred thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, excuse me. Then you, but, but there's a multiple of eight times on our ESOP stock. Well, that's eighty thousand dollars a year. So it's that kind of education to kind of teach everybody about the impact that they can have on driving the business forward. And what what it gives them is the potential to earn some financial security long term. So you talk about different buckets in life, whether it's housing, education, healthcare, retirement. You know, the ESOP plays a role more towards the retirement end for people, but it's one that if things work out well, you know, they can have a, a really nice nest egg that otherwise they wouldn't have. So it's taken time. That circle's gone from, as I said, 20 to 40 to 60. You know, are we ever going to get to 100%? No, that's not realistic. You have people that come in and out, don't last long enough, that don't understand it, don't want to understand it. Um, they're never, not going to get to 100%, but that's absolutely what we're shooting for. So do you still uh, you still have 52% yourself and the 48% is in the ESOP? That's right. The uh, six of uh, us, um, the, six, the six to zero folks and I uh, basically make up the 52%. That's right. That's Got right. it. Got and it. So is in the ESOP. So what do you see as the longer term for yourself uh, in the company? Well, you know, I'm going to stick around well through when we hopefully are, the goal is to do a second ESOP transaction in the next three to five years, which gets us from 48 to 100. Mm. So that's our stated objective. Um, and so I will certainly be sticking around through that. I would stick around after that for a while and then probably start thinking about transitioning to new, you know, new leadership here and maybe try to stay on in some capacity to help out. Um, you know, having been here since 86, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm certainly, I'm a repository for a lot of history, but, uh, you know, probably not a bad thing. I think it's such an important objective for any CEO to plan for their transition and to try to get someone better than themselves. And that will be, you know, once we get through the this next ESOP transaction, um, that will certainly be my primary objective. You know, it sounds uh, like so many things have kind of gone your way, and uh, and I don't want people to get the the feeling that you know any of this is easy uh, or you haven't had challenges along the way. Can you think of a, uh, especially maybe in the in the last few years, uh, a real humbling moment for yourself? Oh yeah, I, I think to, to paint the true picture here, um, and I think folks out there think everything in craft beer is coming up roses these days. It's it's not. It's it's different parts of the industry are doing better or worse. Okay. So in the month, the month before we closed the ESOP transaction, so June of 14, we went into our banks 
And we had a great, have always had a great relation with our banks. I, I had a banking background. I kind of got bankers. We've always been conservative in our financial projections, honest in all of our numbers. So these guys knew, like, trust us. Their main objective for the preceding 15 years was please borrow more money. So we went in the month before the transaction was to close. And this was a five-bank group and told them, guys, we need to cut our forecasts. And they're like, wait a second, what? What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. you know, so we need to cut our forecasts. Like, why? You know, like, okay. We said, we said our credibility is way more important to us than anything else. So we need to, our, our, our thinking about our business has changed. We see storm clouds coming for regional craft brewers like ourselves who've been around for 25 or 30 years. So we did cut our forecast. And they were like, well, historically, you've always been too conservative. They really pushed back, and we did end up cutting them. Well, as it turned out, we were not being too conservative. We have faced, you know, flat to declining sales almost ever since, especially in 17 and 18, 16, 17, and 18. So at a time when we've taken on, you know, for us, unprecedented levels of debt, we have faced, you know, stagnant or declining sales. So the last several years, last four years, have been really pretty challenging for us, but we pulled together and we're meeting it. We're paying, we're meeting our paying down our debt. We're prepaying our debt, but it has been a very humbling and challenging three or four years. And, you know, for the re, for regional craft that have been around for a while, we're not alone in this. If I were to name the five or six top competitors we have in new England, you know, from five years ago and how it's changed, say one out of the five maybe is doing okay. A couple are basically out of business, and you know the other two are selling less beer than they did five years ago. So um, we've been we've we've really reinvented the company in a lot of ways since we did the ESOP, you know, and that so that has been humbling and it's been tremendously challenging. But we've never been better. We, we're 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 executing across the board. We've got a lot of exciting things going on. We bought another small brewery last year called Clown Shoes. It's doing great. We've been focusing on our UFO brand the last year. That's now turned around and is positive. So there's a lot of great stuff in the pipeline here that's making us very optimistic about the future, but it is, it's challenged us like nothing we've ever seen before. Well, and it sounds like just the timing of that transition to an ESOP has really helped that too, just because you build this kind of foundation and loyalty that now you have that team that's even more invested to help you get through these times. Um, can you think, Dan, of any aspect of your personal leadership that you're still working on? Yeah, I would say my um, my public speaking. And I'll, let me just, I'll come back to this one time. But Paul, the other thing I say is I think you'll appreciate this in an odd way. As much as the ESOP has really helped us, we've been bizarrely lucky to have the debt that we've had because it has really focused our attention. I know that might sound strange. It's a little bit like if you have a house and kids and a mortgage and you lose your job, you're not sitting around waiting for things to happen. You're going to get right out there and hit the hustings and get a, you know, get another job. And I think if we didn't have the debt, we might have been a little bit more comfortable saying, hey, let's kind of see how this plays out. Instead, we jumped all over it. And I think that served us really well. But as far as for me, I've, I've really, these four years have been great because I just, without a partner, I've really focused on trying to become the best leader for this business that I can be and kind of looking at those things that I can do better as far as being you know, motivational and being a, a good a speaker, both internally and externally. So that's one area that I really have tried to focus on. It's like, okay, if I want to be able to get up in front of the group internally or get out and speak in front of 500 people and represent our brand well and our story well, I need to really get comfortable with those skills. And that's something that I probably was okay at. 
but I was nowhere near where I needed to be. And I'm not there yet, but I'm still, I'm still trying to really work on that. It's funny that you talk about the, uh, the debt and how that kind of has kept you focused. And, um, I remember, I remember the hard lesson I learned in our in early years in our business when we had a little bit of debt and, uh, got up to, I think $800,000 and I had no idea what it meant to actually, uh, keep a bank even informed or to have a relationship with them or talk to them along the way. And we got in what we call the special assets category, uh, which is basically collections. And, uh, and that was so hard to, for me to go through. And I kind of vowed, uh, between that and my first wife who made me pay off my student loans, you know, right away, uh, and who just didn't like debt. I said, you know, we're going to, we're not going to have any debt. And so, you know, we went, debt free for, you know, 25 years up until towards the end when I, you know, tapped a line of credit to really try to, to grow the business. But yeah, I mean, that, that definitely gave you that, uh, additional perspective. And I'll tell you, I think, uh, you know, just by listening to you, you got a great voice and I, and I, and I think you're, you, you, you have a way of delivering a message and telling a story that I'm sure resonates. So I encourage you to do a lot more of that. Um, you know, when you think, Dan, about your journey so far, uh, and, and you think about maybe, uh, someone younger, uh, a lot of millennials in the business, a lot of millennials loving the, the you know, beer business. Uh, what would you tell somebody young? What kind of advice would you give them in terms of pursuing their career? Great question. And I, and I really do love playing it forward like that and talking to young people. And I, I four kids all in their 20s right now. And I, so it's very front of mind for me with my own kids. And I make it kind of easy because I'm in that world and and I really do remember the first thing I say to a lot of people, I, my oldest is a you know, girl of three boys, and she's a doctor. So she's one of those lucky few who actually know what they want to do as a young person. You know, they've got to be so passionate and focused to get into medicine. But I tell them, first of all, I, said, I, I, tell, tell, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I said, relax. A lot of you think everybody else has got this figured out, and they don't. You know, everyone, almost everybody is kind of figuring it out on the go, and that's perfectly normal. Just go after it with kind of full vigor, and whatever you do, you know, pursue it hard and do your best work. I, and I tell them the story about when I, you know, applied to those almost those three separate jobs, a history professor, the brewery, and the money management, I, as a way to kind of get off that, you know, the, or out of that box of kind of not knowing what I wanted to do. So I think it's be curious and don't settle don't settle for something, you know, that you, you don't find that you love to do and, and don't work with jerks. It's just life is too short, you know. So, and I think I think the world, I, I don't think you probably witnesses as well, Paul, given that we started our business around the same time, same ages, et cetera. The world has gotten much better that way. I mean, it's a much more supportive startup culture now that like Boston is booming with startup companies now, a whole ecosystem that didn't exist, you know, 30 years ago to give support and encouragement to people who want to go off and do that. And certainly, you know, when I, I told people, like, oh, I'm quitting my job to go do what I was doing. You got a lot of raised eyebrows from your friends who are on wall street or in law school or whatever. And today it would be just completely normal. So go, go for it is what I say. And just do it, do it well and do it in a way that's consistent with your values. And, and do it young <laughs> before yeah. when you don't, you don't know anybody, anything, and you have nobody, you know, you're answering to, you know, you have the, the best flexibility there. Yeah. Uh, and you, and you said too, even early on, you said, you know, one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is you don't, uh, you get to work with who you want with, you don't have to work with jerks. And that's not to say that, uh, 
you haven't done that even in your business or we don't hire people that, you know, with all good intentions turn out to be jerks. I mean, the fact is, uh, I think it gives you the freedom and and hopefully learn the courage to make those tough decisions along the way as well and uh, continue to weed the garden to make sure you're working with great people. And, and uh, uh, you know, I could I just hear after all these years, the passion that you continue to have for the business. And that's just uh, uh, just wonderful to hear. And I and I and I think you guys will get to that. Uh, that next level, um, and uh, even see more success with the company. Um, yeah, well, let me, you know, let me uh, let me uh, ask you these these five quick hit questions just to close yep. out, Dan. Kind of the association game. Just tell me, kind of what comes to your mind. Is there a is there a leader that you look up to? Again, I talked about my dad. I, I both of my parents. I delivered the eulogy at both of their funerals, and I, I remember kind of feeling the same way. My lodestar, they're, they're the two of them. Um, and I go back to and think about what they would do in certain circumstances. They live such simple, beautiful lives, and um, I'm trying to do the same thing. Yeah, nothing needs to be said there. I would feel the same way, and luckily my folks are still around. Um, how about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Man, I've read so many great books. I'm reading the Chernow on Grant right now. I'm like 750 pages into the 980 pages in it. Um, let's see. The, the, my leadership style. You know, I think everyone kind of talks about this. There have been so many because I really am a big reader that, you know, whether by Winston Churchill or Steve Jobs, you know, Sometimes you read stuff that turn you off. Like that's, I don't want to be like that person. I think part of the Steve Jobs book, I would just recoil from his uh, narcissism and the way he treated people. Um, I, I'm a big. I, I really am out to kind of prove that um, you know honey is more effective than vinegar, and that good guys and good companies don't have to finish last. So I know that's kind of a, a convoluted answer, but. I think, you know, my dad used to always say, embrace principles, not men. And so I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I think living a simple life, embracing principles rather than following different people down different rabbit holes is kind of important. So I, I probably would have weaved that together from studying a lot of different people over, over my life, if that, if that gives you any answer. But I, sorry, I don't have the one book that I can quickly uh, answer you with, I've just had too many that have impacted me. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I probably should change the question from a great book just to a book because, you know, even yeah. the, like the Steve Jobs book uh, really influenced you. Did not, not to say that you had mm -hmm. great respect for some of the things he did, but it mm -hmm. uh, it really resonated. So uh, how about an all-time favorite movie? Uh, huh. Oh, man, a favorite movie. Um You know, I love One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I read that book, too. I thought that was so, so good and so, so well done. Um, the uh, What movie? The one I loved. I saw in Father's Day, The Boxer. Mm. The Boxer in the Depression. He boxed to get milk money for his kids. Russell Crowe. That was a great one. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. I was going to peg you for a comedy, too, for some reason. Um, yeah, no, Animal House. I mean, some of the old ones. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, for books like Confederacy of Dunces, I was talking about that this week with someone. I read, I read that like every five years. Yeah. Um, how about uh, do you have a favorite TV series to binge watch? <laughs> um, 
Well, my wife and I, I'm, I'm doing, uh, and it's too dark for her, I'm doing Breaking Bad. Yeah. Right now, which is, God, it is dark, but it's it's so well done. Um, and But we watched Parenthood together, all 100, my wife and I, and loved it. We actually went back this weekend and watched the final episode again and just cried together and, and loved that. So, um, I don't know, there's so much good TV out today, isn't it something? Yeah, it's it's funny that you, because I just had this conversation with my wife how hard it is to find a series that we actually want to watch together because yep. I want to I want to watch all that blood and gore and dark mm-hmm. stuff like Breaking Bad and you know uh, you know and she's she just has no interest so uh, you know we we got to go lighter. Yeah. We love Parenthood. Our daughter recommended it and we yeah. ended up actually loving it. Oh, good. Uh, and uh, lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Um, I, that I'm a amateur bird watcher Yeah, that I really am into. Yeah. I really I love spending time outdoors. Well, what that is, uh, that is great. A great, great hobby to have. Um, well, Dan, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you and listening to your journey. Um, I want to reflect on a couple of things that you said that uh, were takeaways for me and I bet for our listeners too. Uh, And one kind of you began and ended uh, with this uh, in terms of your message and your advice for young people in in terms of exploring alternatives um, and realizing that, you know, your passion really comes to you and uh, to take off a little bit of that pressure, try to relax, um, but do your best at whatever it is that you do. And I just think that's such a strong message for people. Uh, you were you were lucky like I was that we started when we were young, um, young enough to be able to take a little bit of risk, um, and you took advantage of that. Uh, love the message about what you learned from uh, your parents, just really the the golden rule is living that simple life, doing well, having great values um, in those early jobs, how you uh, really learned what it was like to work with other people, um, to enjoy diversity, uh, to enjoy building those relationships and realizing no matter what business we're in, we're really in the relationship business. Uh, that early lesson in, in a partner with the PE firm, who you know, you had that uh, perspective, obviously, with someone that was negative, but um, you you knew how to uh, kind of smell that in, in it and uh, knew what you didn't want in terms of the kind of people that uh, that you were working with, um, and you know, even for people that that enter partnerships and and um, uh, with all the challenges that you had along the way, I think that you said, like you said, it's a, if you can have a great partnership, there's really nothing better. And uh, I even said, even though my older brother left the business kind of, uh, like one of yours did early on, um, that, uh, we seem to have complementary talents that we could bring to the business and we respected those. And that made for a really strong partnership, which was, which was great. Uh, the, the, the risk that you took, but this path, when you went to the ESOP, that you left it up to those six other partners, the senior leaders to say, you know, what do you guys want to do? And that's a very selfless act, I think, for both you and Rich. And as much as I know you were all pushing for what you wanted to see out of it, the fact that you left it up to them for people that collectively owned 10% of the business to determine your future uh, meant a lot. Not, it meant a lot not only in for for you guys, but in the message that that delivered to your team, and I think formed the foundation for uh, for where you guys are today. Um, the fact that 
the that getting to an ESOP and going through that process as complicated is as nice as a story that you can tell is not easy. And it, you can't just flip a switch and say, hey, you're now an owner, expect behavior to change, expect, you know, everybody in your company to act differently or to even care and know that over time it's going to be a constant education. Uh, there's a lot of transparency in your business. I love the finance IPA, your idea program. Uh, where you kind of reward people and, and recognize that it's just a constant battle to to get people to understand their contribution to the business and make them feel and act like owners. Uh, and you guys are doing a great job at that. And and even with that, look at the last few years. I mean, you're in a direct to consumer industry that that is changing as we speak. It's it's challenging along the way. But what you said is that that you're executing better than ever, and and that means that you will get through those tough times and you guys will come out the other end. You know, you've been in this business for a long time. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and you can have that sense of optimism that if we just put our heads down and we continue to build this culture of inclusion and, uh, values that we're going to continue to run uh, a great, a, a great business. And, and lastly, just the message that you had for young people that to not settle and to realize, and something I know we, we give a hard time sometimes to millennials for uh, this sense that they job hop and they're not loyal and all that. And, and I say, good for you, you know, keep, you know, I said, keep moving, keep uh, trying, because when they land at a place where they feel like they're contributing contributing to society that they feel valued in what they are doing that they're want uh they're getting the opportunity to learn and grow they will stick around because they will have found the right spot for them and so i think too many people in this day and age um settle and uh and like you said at, at the age in their 20s who who really knows unless you were born with some talent yeah to what they want to do so uh, i feel like i'm an honorary millennial yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we just kind of, we just did the, did our work, used those messages, uh, those examples from our, our parents, uh, worked hard, kept our heads down, uh, treat people with respect, and then good things are going to happen. And, uh, and I think that's a great message for everybody. And uh, I congratulate you on your success, Dan, um, continued Thanks. success. And, and I, I really, it'd be fun to grab that beer one of these days. You know, if you're ever in Boston, our brewery's right across the harbor from Logan Airport, like six minutes away. You got it. Well, I, I definitely will take you up on that. And, uh, and, uh, and maybe as you grow over the years, you'll make your way to the West Coast and we can carry your beer at, uh, at our restaurant out there um, in Laguna Beach, California. But uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining me so on, uh, on this podcast. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.